0: Hi, Matt.
1: Hey, how you doing there?
0: Good, how are you? It's great to see you. Great to see you too. How you been? Good. How are you doing? Pretty good. So no more beard? (laughs) No, I actually (laughs) shaved it off this morning. Oh, okay, cool. So yeah, I mean, I was really struck by that uh, that article you wrote on Mad in America and that project you have, uh, the exposure.
1: Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm excited about it. We had our first uh, rehearsal yesterday, and uh, our, our second one today with the whole cast uh, is going on tonight, and um, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, yeah. cool.
0: You remember, I forget the name of that place, uh, in University City, that we had lunch at. Is that still there? The bakery? Uh,
1: I'm not sure which one you're, you mean. Metropolitan Bakery?
0: May have been that, yeah. Is that right by the uh, where the fresh market was? Yep. Yeah. I don't know, that was know. Yeah. A... yeah. All right. Well, you know what I've been trying to do is really uh, trying to promote more awareness about trauma and how it impacts people, and I'm trying to find different people, different therapists, and people with their own lived experience of trauma to sort of talk about their story and how it's impacted them, and basically really try to highlight the resilience of it. Great.
1: Yeah, I mean, trauma is a a natural response of the brain, right, to um, horrible events. And I think that there are a lot more people out there uh, who have dealt with trauma who might not know that and realize that they've experienced it. And I think for the people who have um, more extreme symptoms, uh, it can create a lot of loneliness and isolation, you know, yeah I think that um they're get, getting help is is really important
0: um, yeah, that one quote that you wrote in that article really struck me that I liked that you said it like you know that I think something along the lines of that life isn't about avoiding pain but changing our relationship to it. I was wondering if you could speak about that
1: sure, absolutely um well, the thing about pain is that. The effect that pain has in one's life and the intensity of the pain is poorly correlated. So what that means is that somebody with with lesser, like let's say a four out of ten, which is still substantial, um, may have uh, difficulty, uh, you know, doing going to work or or doing those kind of things. Where there are people who have an average you know, 7 to 8 out of 10 who are able to do that. And it's not about who's tougher, right? One person isn't tougher than the other. But it's about the sum of our experiences that um, have kind of primed the brain and its relationship to pain. Um, and so what can happen is that um, over time, people's brains can become sensitized to pain. Um, and so then when they feel uh, a pain you know, on their leg or, or those kind of things, um, the natural kind of pain inhibiting systems aren't going to kick in for them in the same way that they would um, for someone else. And so um, it's very important, I think, to, um, to change the way that we relate to pain and not to catastrophize about it and um, to find ways of managing it so that the things that are important to us, um, we can still do. And so um, that's what I try to do in my own life, and that's what I try and do uh, with therapy uh, with my clients. You work
0: with a lot of people with chronic pain, right?
1: Yeah, I do, Um, and I really enjoy that work. And a lot of what we do is work on different mindfulness techniques um, so that they can train their brain in how they just observe their pain. And then we also work on um, life management skills, stress management, um, guided imagery. Sometimes we do some, some hypnosis. Um, and all those things are about uh, changing the circuitry of areas of the brain um, so that they're better able to cope with the pain.
0: Yeah, I, I think I saw that you said that you had some... Uh you had some peripheral nerve injury. In, um, you know? I did.
1: Oh, I uh, I crushed a nerve in my leg uh, originally when I was in high school, and then the pain came back in college, and uh, it was the worst pain I've ever had. And I've had a lot of lot of yes. pain in my life. Um and so it was a journey, and it took a long time for me to find uh, the doctors that kind of understood the, the challenges that I had and also to learn uh, different techniques uh, for coping with the pain.
0: Yeah, because my, me personally I never I always thought like chronic pain it was sort of this uh, yeah thing that people like, I couldn't really relate to personally, but I had a little bit of this peripheral Nerve injury to this uh, part of my brachial plexus in the neck and to connecting the shoulder and that, yeah, that pain is the worst I've experienced too. And you go to a million doctors and they think you're just catastrophizing and there's not, it's tough because there's no, like, it's not a clear answer. Like you break a bone and you uh, put a cast on it and heals. It's just so complicated. And I did a lot of my own research regarding pain and different drugs and it's, yeah, it's very interesting.
1: It, it is, and it's it's really uh, an expanding field. Pain really hasn't been its own discipline uh, until the 1990s. So um, researchers all over the world are kind of are catching up and realizing that pain is a disease in and of itself. Um, and so a lot of what the research is showing, we originally they had predicted, oh, like once we know more about the brain, Therapy will be obsolete and we'll just have a pill to fix everything. But, but
0: there's no pill that can do that. <laughs> no.
1: And what they're finding out about the brain is how important therapy is as, as a tool. And that through neuroplasticity, it's actually possible to change the connections in the brain and the way that the brain uh, perceives the pain so that yeah. even if it's not possible... To reduce the actual intensity of it, um, people can find ways to do the things that are important to them.
0: Yeah, I mean the interesting thing about opiates uh, in particular that they don't really, uh, they don't really get rid of the, the sensation of pain but they just make it uh, tolerable and it's really that emotional and that's the part, like you said, you can, tra- you can work on mindfulness too, that emotional response to the pain which is so important.
1: Absolutely. And, and that's one of the differences between acute pain and, and chronic pain is that uh, acute pain kind of just goes to the thalamus and then the prefrontal cortex is like, move hand off stove. But chronic pain actually um, is processed by a number of different areas of the brain that are associated with emotion and cognition and connecting the two.
0: What are, what are some of those regions that it's uh, the chronic? The
1: anterior cingulate cortex is a very important area um, that I work with with clients, and that's sort of um, encoding the uh, the cognitive and and the emotional. So, for example, the perception of um, and, and the and the area of the pain that that's the most, that creates the most dysfunction, right, is um, the way that we relate to that pain. And so um, through mindfulness techniques, and there's also uh, hypnosis techniques that actually trigger and activate that area of the brain and help it to, um, in neuroplasticity. Um, The sensory uh, motor cortex is also really important, in the perception of pain and as pain, the longer that you have pain, the larger the area of that brain that's associated to the painful area becomes. So over time, the brain can literally become programmed to focus in on the pain. And so um, I help clients by mindfulness techniques, by having them focus in on the areas around the pain, the areas that aren't painful, and how that and play with how that perception changes.
0: And one of the things I think is interesting too, I wonder if you, what your opinion about this, is the idea that sort of emotional like traumas and physical pain can actually be located in the same part of the brain. Is that you say the emotional trauma is also in the uh, anterior cingular cortex still?
1: Uh, that area of the brain is certainly activated. And there's a, there's a lot more areas of the brain that are activated Yeah, sure. This is so I systems. just mentioned. Um, But what it looks like is that my understanding is that sort of the way that the brain looks like when it has like a separation from a loved one or emotional pain, that that pattern looks very similar to the pattern of when we're experiencing physical pain. Right. Um, And I think one can make the other more difficult to cope with. And I think one can set up people for the other.
0: Yeah, no, it's that, one of the things I find really interesting, I don't know if you've heard, seen any of this uh, links and connection research regarding that, uh, they talk about that, that the, opiate, the opiate system is sort of connected to the attachment system, and, and that particularly people that have, uh, it's, I feel it's very common women that have been sexually abused uh, or deprived of love when they're children, that they're more likely to become uh, opiate addicts as adults. One of your, you of well,
1: people level. who have dealt with childhood trauma, um, especially physical trauma, yeah. are more likely to develop chronic pain as adults. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that it's definitely going to happen, but it's far more likely. And um, conditions, for example, like fibromyalgia, uh, there are people like Claw who are talking about reclassifying it as a centralised pain condition because you do see people that have kind of one pain condition when they're a teenager, one, a different one, you know, maybe they have irritable bowel in their 20s and and fibromyalgia in their 30s. And so the idea is that maybe these aren't different um, diseases or different syndromes. Maybe they're all representative of a central pain condition. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting idea and CLAW has research to back it up. And so I hope that we move more in that, that direction?
0: No, but I was wondering about the link between people that become, um, not necessarily chronic pain per se, but people that become, uh, I've seen this connection between people that, yeah, become like heroin addicts that they had, that had uh, like sexual abuse or, or extreme neglect when they were, uh, children and then sort of, uh, unconsciously, uh, it was using the opiates really to try to uh, to deal with that attachment injury as children.
1: I think a lot of people self-medicate, you know, for a lot of different reasons, and so um, you know, I, I just hope that people realize that and are able to get help um, because we all need help now and then, and. Um, But there certainly is a lot of research about comorbidities with uh, childhood sexual trauma, and there certainly is a link between uh, childhood trauma and sexual trauma and and chronic pain throughout the rest of the person's life. So I think um, that something like that that is just so extremely traumatic that... Uh, I think it changes the way that the brain is organized and it changes the way that the brain processes um, information and and works just in in general. Uh, Increased anxiety disorders, all different kinds of things can happen when the brain is sort of primed in in that way.
0: the brain is so, especially like growing up, the younger the person is, that when the trauma happened, the brain is more impressionable.
1: Absolutely, it's certainly more plastic.
0: Yeah. Um, any? Do you do you see a lot of people that uh, self harm and cut? Um, I don't usually.
1: Um, that's really like an extreme kind of um, reaction. That when when you don't have any other. Um, you know, way of dealing with it, but certainly people do do that. Um, I haven't had to do that for a very long time, but it, at at one point in my life, it it was a strategy that I used to cope with extreme pain to kind of interrupt that pain cycle. Um, but it, it certainly, you know, I was lucky that I wasn't injured, you know, severely. And, um, you know, it's certainly the last the last option, but I think, you know, if there are people out there who who find that that is part of their pain management strategy, that it's really important that they talk to their doctor and that they see a therapist. Because I think um, there's another half to healing, and when you're talking about something like chronic pain. It's really important not only to have a, a good physician that, that you trust and that will work with you, but that you also have a therapist that you can talk through some of these things and learn some of the, the meditation strategies, guided imagery, those kind of things, uh, to help to reprogram the brain.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I was even thinking about it more as I've become more familiar with these kind of things. that to me, in a, in a way that I think that that actually cutting is in a way maybe similar to like, I mean, it's... Obviously acupuncture is more of a skilled thing, but it's sort of those sensory uh, superficial nerve fibers that it sort of activates.
1: I think there are a lot of quirks in the nervous system, and I think we're just beginning to understand them and, and learn about them, and so I think that there's a lot of different ways uh, to interrupt or inhibit the, the flow of, of pain information to the brain. And that, um, that we're going to find a lot of great things. I mean, I can remember, um, you know, when I was a kid, being in the hospital and being in a lot of pain. And then something that, like, I really wanted to watch on TV would come on, or, or a good movie. And I would just, it would seem like all of a sudden I wasn't, I wasn't in pain, right? right. And some people thought, I'm sure they thought, well, you know, is he malingering? Is he just making it up? But the fact was that I was successfully being distracted at that point, and so I think um, when you have chronic pain um, you know, self harm cutting you know superficial kind of pain kind of things is sort of an extreme version of that um, right. so, yeah it, I think that's basically what it is I mean it also causes more endogenous opiates to sure, be sure. released um, and it it takes your attention off of the chronic pain yeah
0: yeah what were you saying
1: but it's not a good idea and i think i'm not advocating for it Uh, you know i think it happens and i think that it's a huge sign hey i need help you know somebody's doing that
0: do you ever do any acupuncture? Or do you ever find that helpful? For
1: I, I have done acupuncture. Unfortunately, because my anatomy is kind of very different than the average, um, finding the right places to to put the needles has been challenging. So I haven't really found relief from acupuncture beyond being distracted when I have a bunch of needles. Right. <laughs> But as far as lasting help, um, but my mother and my grandmother have, you know, and I think that those kind of things that we need to study more. And I think that what researchers are finding out about the way that the brain works and the mind-body connection um, are lending credence to uh, other um therapies and alternative techniques that people for years have said this can be helpful Um, I think that pain is very individualized and very personalized and so one person may uh, find that acupuncture works while someone else it might not help at all and I don't think that means that that technique really didn't help the first person I think that it just means that we need to have a lot of different options for people, and they need to have the opportunity to try different things to find a concoction that works for them.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering if what do you think about different of these sort of uh, neuromodulation techniques with uh, electrical stimulation and that kind of stuff? Have you uh, had any experience with that stuff? Uh,
1: I mean, I've, I've tried things like that. I, for me personally, I found biofeedback was actually more helpful. Yeah. Um,
0: what type of biofeedback?
1: Uh, I did neurobiofeedback. I did muscle biofeedback. And I did uh, temperature
0: biofeedback. Oh, I never heard of the temperature
1: one. Uh, that's for migraines. Uh-huh. So the idea is to cool the head and warm the body. Um, and so they hook you up to a machine that, that tracks your temperature. And you try and, and lower it. Um, in the head. But, interesting.
0: But, yeah, never heard of that.
1: Yeah, actually what I do with my clients sometimes is there are these like they're really cheap. They're kind of like mood rings, but they're they're like a a thing you, like a flat, you know, like a plastic Yeah, flat. I think
0: I've seen that before online somewhere.
1: And so um I encourage people to just put one of those on their forehead and you can look in a mirror and then you can imagine like lying in a warm bath with like ice on your head you know i wouldn't do that because you could have some issues but if you imagine it um it can actually help to lower the temperature in the head and and warm the body
0: yeah i never saw that in the head i saw these actually these mood rings that change colors that's what i thought you were talking about so. well they
1: they now have these like they're kind of poor man's temperature you that's know amazing. thermometer kind of things and um, you can just put them on your head, um, and they're used. You know, if you're sick and you don't have a thermometer, but they can be they can be used um, to actually to do some biofeedback. Um, and I've I've used that technique personally. I um, advocate with my clients, and it it helps.
0: Yeah, this is kind of far out. I mean, uh, you can. Uh, i wonder if you have any uh, f- a familiarity with this stuff, but. I've seen some, uh, some newer research, I mean, they've been banned for a long time, the whole psychedelics, uh, but I, I've heard some people say that they've found relief with pain by doing different uh, like acid or peyote or mescaline. Well,
1: I, I don't have personal experience <laughs> yeah. with that, um, but I know that um, we're just learning about the way that, that the brain perceives pain. Yes. Yeah. So theoretically, do I think it could be possible that that could change you know, change someone's relationship with pain? Yeah. Um, you know, possibly. Um, ketamine is, for example, is a yeah. drug that's used recreationally, but that it's actually shown. Um, an ability to bond with one of the main pain receptors.
0: Yeah, I know these people go in these ketamine comas, uh, to and they they come out and they they their pain is totally gone. It's amazing. It
1: can reset the yeah. the pain cycle, you know, in the way that the brain perceives pain. Like there, there's growing evidence about that, um, and also in some uh, pain people with pain. They get a very small dose of um, psilocybin, which is right. in magic mushrooms. Right. And uh, a very small dose delivered to the spine for some people actually can relieve pain.
0: Psilocybin uh, delivered to the spine? Yeah,
1: into the intrathecal space. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's also, they use snail venom, uh, that's a neurotoxin delivered to the intrathecal space sometimes. Um, so you know there are there are medical applications for them. Um, there's also uh, a drug that unfortunately has gotten you know bad press because it's used as a date rape drug. Um, GHB. Yes, and I've heard that some. Some doctors are thinking that it might actually help to treat centralized pain conditions, but I don't know if how far research has progressed on that front. Well,
0: I think it it works on the GABA receptors, which is uh, like uh, similar to neurontin or the, uh, what's the other one? Uh, uh, Lyrica and all that. Yeah. It's
1: just basically neurontin. Yeah. Fancy. Whatever.
0: Yeah. Well, did you find some of that stuff helped you with your any of that stuff? The uh, like the, the. I didn't speech? find that
1: lyrica helped my pain um, or gabapen. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I do take some other pharmaceutical drugs um, that are helpful, but um, they're not nearly enough without the meditation techniques and yeah. other things that I do.
0: Yeah, but I liked how the way you responded in your uh, the piece The Mad in America because I mean I, I think that a lot of the work they're doing is very good to trying to bring more awareness to like some of the the you know the the, the marketing and the ties of the pharmaceutical companies with the drugs. But I, but I think sometimes some of those people get a little bit too far and say that all drugs are bad. And I, I like the way that you you sort of. Uh, but you have to have a perspective on it that they're a, they're a piece of the toolbox. They're not going to solve the whole thing, but they can be helpful in certain applications. I
1: I, I do. I think that they can be helpful, um, and I think that it's important to have a care team with with a knowledgeable physician and a therapist, and and to work at it from multiple fronts. But I do think that, that medicine um, and, and that pharmaceuticals, for some, can be very helpful. But unfortunately, they don't work for everyone. And unfortunately, people ha- often are, end up going through this odyssey of dealing with different side effects of different drugs until they find something that helps without uh, causing a decrease in the quality of life because of the side effects. And I think that that can be a really grueling process for people, and there's no guarantee at the end that they're going to find something that makes an appreciable difference but I think by having therapy on board you know for the whole um, journey that they can be learning skills and learning a way to relate to their pain in a different way that can be really helpful um, in in showing an appreciable difference in either the intensity of the pain or in what they're able to do even though they're in pain.
0: Yeah, actually, I just saw something interesting the other, last week related to oxytocin helping to modulate pain. I was wondering if uh, if you've heard anything about that or what your perspective.
1: I is. I hadn't I hadn't read anything recently, yeah. but it makes total yeah. sense. I mean, when we're in pain, we reach out and we want to hug, and you know, and so it makes sense that. Um, I mean, medicine is is only a few thousand years old, and I think before that, we had to um, find a way to to cope with pain, to cope with different illnesses, and so I think. That Because human beings are such relational beings that we evolved uh, ways of coping and sort of an internal medicine that's modulated by our connections with other people. And I think that's one of the reasons why therapy um, is so effective is because it activates those internal mechanisms.
0: Yeah, I was wondering if you, uh, I saw he commented on one of your articles on Mad America, Peter Bregan, have you You know him?
1: Uh, I don't, Kermit uh, knows him better okay. than I do, and so he's had a lot of contact with him and he's kind of told me about um, his work.
0: Yeah, I just had the pleasure of meeting him actually at this conference in Tampa over uh, last weekend.
1: Oh, that's great.
0: Yeah. Uh, how? Yeah, Kermit. I've never met uh, personally, but did he create Mad in America? Uh,
1: Uh, My understanding is that he did not create it, but uh, he's the he's one of the webmasters for it. Okay. How long
0: has he been in um, at the Council for Relationships, Kermit?
1: He's been at the Council, I believe, for two years. It might be longer than that now. Um, He's he's a great guy, and he was actually I supervised him last year when he was in the program. So that's how we became connected talking about cases and just, you know, the supervisory uh, process. And so we've been, become good friends since that.
0: Yeah, uh, and I also, what's his name, was there too? Robert Whitaker was at the conference, and um, this other guy, I don't know if you know him, but he's a doctor that he's very sort of critical. A lot of the, the psychiatric research, this guy, Peter Gocha. uh... Well,
1: I mean, I I think that there was a very interesting study that came out recently that people with psychiatric illnesses um, do better with less medicine and more life skills support wraparound services. Right. Um, And I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think that um, if we were to take uh, a longitudinal large study that we would find that in general, long-term uh, meds don't have the kind of outcomes that we would want, uh, especially by themselves. And I think that uh, it's really important that um, we we change the way that we do healthcare and we add multidisciplinary teams. Um, they are more expensive as far as you know, healthcare care spending.
0: Yeah, but the idea, the, my perspective is if uh, they're more expensive, but if you actually get people better, then it's, it costs, costs less in the long run.
1: I agree with you. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think that's a discussion that as a nation that we need to have.
0: Yeah. And um, yeah, the other model that that's like the guy Robert Whitaker really uh, points out, which I think regarding the meds and psychiatric conditions is And meds, um, when they are helpful, they're often helpful in the short term. And if people are on them for long term, they lose the benefit and they often create more harm. And it's like, the way I kind of look at it, the model like a cold, you have a cold, like you're not going to be taking antibiotics forever. Eventually you go off of them. And I think taking that more approach to psychiatric medication would be more helpful than our current model that, especially with the people with... uh, you know, bipolar schizophrenia that they need to be on them forever for life, which is ridiculous.
1: Well, I think that if we had more life skills programs and we had ways um, to help support them, you know, if if family therapy were, uh, you know, more common uh, place for people with illnesses, I think that um, that there would be ways to get people off of meds in the long term but I think you know it's really important not to take away someone's crutch when there isn't a bridge to something else and I think that that keeps people on meds long term because they don't see another alternative and so that's why I believe in starting therapeutic and support services as soon as you start medical interventions and you kind of work upon those two tracks so that the meds can be a short-term kind of bridge to help the person stabilize so that they can learn the life management techniques and they can learn how to deal with stress and they can work with their family so then they're in a better place going forward.
0: Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're you've uh, are familiar with it at all, the Adverse Childhood Experience study?
1: Uh, I'm not, No.
0: Yeah, well, you should really check it out. It's an amazing study done by these two physicians in uh, California in the late 1990s, uh, Robert and Vince Felitti. And what they really tracked was uh, they interviewed adults on Kaiser Permanente Insurance, which is like a massive insurance company down there, and they interviewed 17,000 adults and took a very comprehensive health history. But then they asked them, uh, specifically, these these types of events they were looking for, which they called adverse childhood experiences, in short for ACE, and they were if the person experienced uh, uh, sexual abuse before the age of 18, physical abuse, emotional abuse. You know what yeah. I'm talking about now? Yeah. 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 And they found that there was this huge, robust correlations between these things and health quali- uh, health outcomes as adults. And uh, but anyway, but I see there's been this whole movement around. the informed by this to treat, create more trauma-informed services, and I see a lot of uh, stuff happening in Philadelphia regarding that. Uh, yeah, um,
1: I'm, I'm really excited and positive about uh, some of the programs that are going on uh, right now. CHOP has a medical trauma uh, department, which I think is amazing, and I really hope that, that other uh, pediatric hospitals across the country follow suit. In that, um, there's also been uh, Chop is one of the originators of patient and family-centered care, which is um, really helpful in um, keeping the family engaged in the healthcare process. Um, and uh, there are a lot of other programs. I mean, it ten years ago when I went to the emergency room and I said, "Yeah, I have PTSD." People actually, doctors actually ask me, what's PTSD? And that doesn't happen anymore, you know. Um, and so I'm excited to see that change. Um, but I, I think that in order to really manifest the benefits of that understanding, like I don't mean to be a broken record, but that we need wraparound services and we, and we need therapeutic and social support
0: yeah there's some program I forget the name of it. I saw in Drexel that was happening regarding this kind of stuff too that looked very cool.
1: yeah, I mean, I think that um, we're realizing that it's really needed, and that uh, trauma can be really debilitating, and even people you know that don't have the classic PTSD symptoms. That it can have a huge impact on their quality of life and their health care outcomes and a lot of other issues.
0: Yeah, I mean, my perspective is I mean, almost like almost anybody with that are sort of um, really uh, patients, long term patients of the social service system generally have often have their underlying thing is some type of trauma in their childhood almost always. I mean, yeah, uh, but uh, anyway. uh, this concept is a little bit of a different, I mean, related subject. I was wondering what your perspective on this is. That I forget where I first heard it. Somebody told me about it, like about comparing trauma, that it's like, you know, that there's this idea that sometimes like there's, a, it can be like a contest, like one people, oh, they, they think their trauma is worse than the other person, but when it really comes down to it, it's like whatever you're this old um this lady that this old grandmother friend of mine who's ninety four or something and her her way of framing it is that like yeah your pain is your pain i mean if you if one person could have uh like like you in particular that you're dealing with a lot of uh things that you know most you know the average person isn't having to deal with but uh but the other you know regular people have their own pain and and sort of this idea about it not being a contest I was wondering what that.
1: Well, I agree with that 100%, and I don't think that it's useful to try and compare who's got it worse or, or whose pain is worse. Um, the way that, that we're learning about the way that the brain and the body work and how they can be individualized, one person, you know, you, two people could slam their hand on, on the table, and the amount of pain that they're actually feeling and the effect of that on their life can be radically different, even though the sensation in the hand is actually the same. And so, um, I, I just I, I don't engage in, in that. I, I don't think that what I have to deal with is any worse than what anybody else has to deal with because I'm not in their skin. And I've had clients that have come to me and been like, "Yes, you know, I have this pain, but your pain is so much worse. Like, I don't want you to think that, you know, or whatever." And and i tell people hey like i never think that and if anything like you should come to somebody that has more experience with that issue and so if i do which i'm not saying that i do but if i do then you know i can use that to help you and deal deal with your pain and so when i have a client that comes and tells me about whatever pain they have um, I'm never thinking in my head, oh, well, it's not that bad, or oh, it, it's not as bad as what I, I deal with. I, I never, I've never thought that once. You know, I'm just thinking about how does this affect their life and, and how has it been challenging because other than chronic itching, chronic pain is, is the sensation that's most likely to trigger um, psychological symptoms and, and emotional and affective
0: Right. issues right. Uh, well can you talk a little bit how did the uh, the whole uh, the exposure project come about how did uh
1: well kermit has experience in documentary filmmaking and and he actually um directed a one-man show at one point and so we had talked about how um he had mentioned hey you know you you might want to think about doing something and uh Around a few months before, my dad had been diagnosed with brain cancer, and so um, I really was looking for a way to kind of thank thank him and honor my parents and really show um, all the things that they've done to help me. And so I started talking with with Kermit, and then uh, we we got together with Michaela Moore and. Uh, production company Seven Engines that has a lot of great people, and um, we're we're building a show from scratch, um, which I'm really excited about. And the Kickstarter's done really well, and we're almost to our goal, and I'm really uh, excited about that. And we're gonna have a stretch goal um, coming soon, you know, if we're once we're able to make that, if we're able to make it, um, and so I'm really excited about the process and. The idea is that um you know for me walking around it it takes a huge amount of balance and for me it's like being an acrobat and uh-huh. so um we're going to have some really uh talented and creative uh dancers and acrobats and people who specialize in different types of movement and we're going to um depict my experience and disability um, in a way that that I don't think has been been
0: seen before. Yeah, I mean that's one of a good point that you brought up related to pain, though. In my personal experience too, and, I, and I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit. About that. There, there's something about I think it, maybe it's related to that sensory motor cortex that when you when you're moving more, that it takes away the pain. Right.
1: Absolutely. There we go. It's a little better. All right, so yeah, so that way you can see my hands and everything um, yeah, i mean i movement is really important, and when you have a disability or if you're newly disabled, you know even if you have a major surgery, your relationship to your body has changed, and so I think that movement is an important part of any kind of mind-body um, intervention and I think uh, that's why a lot of people have uh, had uh, positive benefits from things like yoga and and those kind of things and so I think one of the things is that when you're in pain the last thing that you want to do is move yeah. and so you know you need to, to talk to a physical therapist and a doctor and make sure that you're not causing more tissue damage but you're able to move. Um, I encourage people to move uh, as often as they can. And um, a a great friend of mine, uh, Jackie Miller, she once told me, you know, when you want to go out and see the snow geese, you go out and see the snow geese. And what she meant by that was that if it's something that's important for you, if it's something that really matters to you, even if you're going to be in pain doing it, you know if it 's possible for you to do it, go out there and do it because life is short for everyone, uh, even if you live a hundred years, and uh, there are limited opportunities to really do things that that you care about and that matter and that speak to who you are and no matter what disability somebody has or if they're born with it or, or get it later or how much pain someone's in. It's really important for people to honor who they are and do the things that, that matter to them.
0: Um, what was her name? I, I thought about you. Was, I remember you told me you knew her, but I, I, I was trying to actually connect with her, too. She was an amazing person. I think her name is Melissa. And she went to Widener. She's from the Delaware County area. She's in a wheelchair. You know what I'm talking about?
1: Yes. Yeah. There are a lot of really great people. You know,
0: what's her name? Do you don't remember her last name? You know what I'm talking about?
1: I'll have to think about yeah. it.
0: I know okay. you're talking about. Yeah. Oh. But uh, yeah. Uh, what was I gonna say? Oh, so are you planning on taking this show on the road at all? The exposure?
1: Uh, we're we're talking about that. Um in May we're gonna have um two shows to kinda of like a workshop kind of show to work some things out and, and to get some feedback from, from an audience and uh, then uh, early um, it, next year we're going to do the full, um, the full show. So I'm um, really excited about both and um, yeah, um, really excited to get started and I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a really cool experience for people.
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing that whenever I had um, lunch with you that struck me is I never thought about it this way because I guess, you know, it's one of those things, I guess, being able bodied, don't tend to think about it as much. How I remember how you were speaking to that, uh, uh, that you did a lot of uh, like activism regarding uh, uh, like fit ins and whatnot for uh, disability rights.
1: Yeah, I have. I haven't done uh, any of that work recently. Um, that was more things that I was involved in in college, and also uh, when the Americans with Disabilities Act um, was, wasn't was quite passed, but, but it was getting there, um, one of the important provisions in it was that it allowed for service dogs, yeah. and so I had a service dog at the time, and... Um, you know, laws really don't go into effect until they're, they're tried and, and you deal with that challenge. And so there were a lot of restaurants um, that tried to kick me and my dog out. And so um, in New Jersey, fortunately at the time, New Jersey had a service dog law even before the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so um, I would refuse to leave because they were kicking me out because of the dog. Ah. And so then they would call the police um, and then I would show the police the state law, and sometimes I even had to call the state police um and then I was allowed to eat in that restaurant and so um a lot of activism and, and civil rights is not just about um the the marches and the protests and getting the law passed it's about um using it in everyday life and so a place isn't isn't desegregated until somebody actually goes there and 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 engages in that and um, so a lot of what I've tried to do with my life is to go places that maybe there aren't there haven't been a huge amount of people with disabilities in those fields or in those areas and um, to try and engage people and to get ramps built and To try and get the structure in place, but also to help advise um, uh, healthcare providers about trauma and kind of the things that we're talking about today, so that I can share my experience. So that when the next generation interacts with that healthcare system, um, you know, the things that happened to me 10, 20 years ago that, that wouldn't be tolerated today, you know, that those people don't have to go through it.
0: Did you find benefit with the service dog?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, My second service dog, Rocky, actually saved my life um, on more than one occasion. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. Um, And service dogs are really important for just independence. Um, It allowed me uh, more freedom when I had Rocky uh, than I have now that I don't have a dog. And um, there's a whole host of things that they can help. They can help people with Parkinson's disease. They can help people with, with sensory disabilities, um, with people with with autism and Asperger's, people with, with uh, bipolar uh, syndrome. And I think it's because human beings and dogs have kind of co-evolved for a long time. And I think, um, that dogs are able to connect with people, um, and help, just help them calm down and just help them, um, to deal with, with different things. Dogs can sense seizures, for example. And so kids can get in a safe position because they know a seizure is going to happen. Um, and I really support service dogs. And for example, um, there was one occasion, Rocky, who was a, a red golden retriever. Um, we were on our way back uh, to the dorm, and we cut through a parking lot. And we were in the middle of a summer storm, and it was raining so hard that I couldn't. I couldn't really look up. I had to kind of go like this. And I was driving a scooter at the time, and the right back wheel hit one of those concrete parking uh, in the parking lot and the scooter flipped over on me and i landed in this huge hole that they had been doing construction at that was filled with water and so the half the top of my body was in the hole and the the rest of me was pinned underneath the 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 scooter and i broke three ribs on one side, two ribs on the other, and dislocated a rib. So I I couldn't, like, really scream because I was having trouble just breathing. And um, so my head was in the water, and I had to lift it up and take a breath and put it down and lift it up and take a breath. And Rocky was whining and barking, but there was no one coming. And I didn't ask him to do this. I didn't give him a command, but he laid in the hole, so i could put my head on his back and the water was really cold and he, we were both shivering and so i told rocky to get up and i thought we could take turns you know and he refused my commands he just laid there in the hole so i could keep my head above water and his whining and and barking eventually some guys came and helped me flip the the chair over and i was able to get to the hospital um, but if it wasn't for Rocky risking his own life, risking hypothermia, being in that really cold water, um, you know, I would—I'm convinced that I would not be here today. And it wasn't a command I—I I gave him, and actually, he refused my commands. He just—we had such a connection together, and so we spent every moment of our, our life pretty much together for over ten years. Um, and so Rocky and I had such a strong connection. Um, and that was just one time. There were, I think, four or five times in, my, in our time together that Rocky um, saved my life, including once taking on a, a pack of wild dogs that were trying to bite me. And, and, um, he, he attacked them, even though they were bigger and there were more of them. Um, and and he defended us, and he could have run away. I told him to run away, and um, he refused. He stood his ground, and when uh, the uh, the pit bull grabbed onto my the, my brace, um, he even though pit bulls are big, dangerous dogs compared to a golden retriever in that situation, um, he attacked that dog um, and didn't think about himself, but thought about about me and. That's just the kind of connection that people can have with service animals when they depend on them for their survival.
0: Yeah, I've actually recently started doing the, working with this company that I help evaluate people to for them to get service dogs, and I, I've really seen a lot of the benefits that people derive from them, and it's it's, uh, it's amazing. That's and great.
1: that's great work because I definitely think that we need more service animals.
0: I mean, and, and certainly my perspective is is. Uh, They can only help people. I mean, they can't. They're not going to really do any harm. So. Right.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And they can do a huge benefit. Um, I'm not the only one that's been saved by by their service animal.
0: Well, anyway, well, thanks so much, Matt, for uh, joining me here. I really appreciate it. I'm trying to uh, trying to spread the word. As many people as I can to uh, support your project because I think it's really. Thank awesome. you.
1: I really appreciate it, and I'll keep you updated about um, everything that goes on with it. And um, thank you so much for having me. It's great. Yeah, you really
0: look. Uh, you look good, though. You do look right. good. Thanks. So yeah. yeah,
1: it's been a while.
0: Yeah, we'll see you. Take care. All right. Bye.